Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for interviews and readings with the finalists and winners of our annual prizes. And believe it or not, we're getting to the end of our conversations with the authors and illustrators of the 2020 BC and Yukon Book Prizes. But don't worry, the podcast will continue until the 2020 shortlists are announced and we start this all over again. We're putting together some really exciting episodes with people you might be familiar with from the BC and Yukon literary community and some others that you might get to know through the podcast. On this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Wendy Wickwire, who wrote At the Bridge. At the Bridge was a finalist for the 2020 Roderick Haig Brown Regional Prize. As you'll hear in the interview, Wendy and I chat back and forth like we've known each other for years, and in many ways it felt like that. We actually found out that her sons went to the same high school as me, and when I was a young poli-sci student at UVic, I read her partner Michael's book. But don't worry, uh, the part where we reminisce about growing up and living on the Saanich Peninsula and living in Victoria are not included in the podcast. Instead, you'll hear Wendy talk about James Tate, the man who inspired a multi-decade exploration into who he was and ultimately led her to digging into Canadian and British Columbian colonial history and took her all the way to Lerwick in Shetland. Wendy is a professor emeritus in the history department at the University of Victoria, and she has written a number of books, including Stein, The Way of the River. Wendy starts our conversation with a reading from At the Bridge. You you want me to read something from my book, and I should just warn your readers that um, if anybody picks it up, um, it's not, it's a biography, but it's not a chronological A to Z story each chapter is storied in kind of its own thing and it jumps around so i'm going to start with uh the opening of chapter two chapter one is kind of my story how i came to this project chapter two jumps in first with uh one of the key characters in my story who's a really fascinating guy from from uh, germany who immigrated to north america as a young man ended up in new york city He's landed uh, for the first time uh, at the little village of Spences Bridge uh, on the Thompson River, and uh, it's 1894. And it sets up my story quite well, because the my biographical subject, uh, James Tate, had arrived 10 years earlier in the same village. So here we have Francois as a very frustrated young man who's trying to sort of forge a place in somewhere. And he's very highly educated, believe it or not, in physics and um, and in mathematics, but he's kind of lucked into geography. And he's trying to, uh, in, in Germany, in his background, trying to make his way to North America, ideally in a museum or a or a university, and he's not making very good headway. He's got small contracts primarily everywhere, and none of them are leading to anything he wants, anything permanent. Uh, So so he's doing these small ethnographic projects in British Columbia, and uh, people are thinking at most of his stops that he's a rather strange character. 
you know, he's carrying a suitcase full of metal tools because part of his contract is to measure people. Uh, and he's supposed to be giving a sense of the boundaries throughout the province, the, the cultural, the indigenous boundaries, cultural boundaries, language. It's, it's a massive task. Anyway, so chapter two is my opening of, of really my story. And I start with him. So it's called Boats, Trains, Horses. A weary traveler stepped tentatively off the CPR's westbound train at Spence's Bridge at 4 a.m. on September 19, 1894. Later to gain renown as the father of American anthropology, here in the desolate darkness of yet another dusty town, Franz Boaz was unknown and far from his New York City home. He had spent the previous days trudging through the towns of Enderby, Sycamuse, and Kamloops, trying to kickstart some field work on local reserves. But things had not gone well. My trip to the Okanagan Valley was a failure, he wrote to his parents. The Indians were very contrary, and I could do nothing. As Spence's Bridge was one of his last stops before heading to the coast, time was running out. Desperate for some sleep before sunrise, Boaz made his way to the hotel adjacent to the tracks, banged on the door, and in a thick German accent asked for a room. On being told that the hotel was full and his only option was a shared bed with a drunken workman, his words, he would have run away right then if, had, if it had made any sense, he wrote to his wife, Marie. After strenuous objections, he got a second offer, a single room with unwashed linens in the ladies' quarters. He took the ladies' room, but he wasn't happy about it. He described the bedsheets to Marie as so soiled that he had to sleep with his clothes on and the whole establishment is dirtier than an Indian house. These were his words in his letter. The scene by daylight, daylight was little better. The village is a little dump, he wrote, of three or four houses. Everything about the place looked hopeless. Boaz's goal at Spence's Bridge was to, to collect data on the local Ntlakatmuk peoples. On hearing of a big farmer across the river from his hotel, who knew the Indians well, he ferried over to find him. The farmer surprised him by suggesting that he carry on to see his nephew, Jimmy Tate, a young man, he said, who was far more knowledgeable of the Indians than he. He pointed to a trail on a steep side slope as the route to his nephew's ranch. Fighting exhaustion, Boaz started up the mountain in the great heat, and here I'm skipping a bit because I have here my own trip up to the same place a few years before the book finished. So here I'm back in the book, chapter two. Given his cool reception in the Okanagan, Boaz did not expect much of his trek, especially when he arrived at his destination and found that Tate wasn't there. Antko was there, however, and she invited him to stay as she expected her husband back shortly. In a letter to Marie the next day, Boaz wrote that Antko and an old man had entertained him for an hour while he waited. His comment evokes a colorful image of Boaz and Antko, Tate's wife, struggling through a range of Chinook jargon words and phrases to make themselves understood. If Antko had greeted him with Klahawag, hello in Chinook jargon, mitlete tanas, stay a while, Boaz might have responded with Masi, thank you. 
If she offered him a cup of tea, he might have responded with, highest closhy, very good. One can also picture Boaz eyeing with curiosity the couple's sparsely finished one-room cabin, its shelves lined with books on folklore, history, and language, and a case in the back corner filled with notebooks. Aunt Co and her companion undoubtedly eyed their anxious visitor with similar curiosity. According to one of Boaz's close colleagues, what most people noticed at first about him were his coal black and piercing eyes. Boaz realized within minutes of Tate's return that his afternoon trek was worthwhile. The young man he had come to visit was able to converse with Antko, his wife, and her companion in their Ntlakatmuk language and was on close terms with their relatives from the adjacent reserve. The best part was that Tate had heard of the anthropological work that Boaz had been doing uh, in British Columbia over the last few years. Buoyed by the prospect of help with his fieldwork, Boaz hastened back down the mountain to retrieve his tools and returned a couple of hours later to spend the rest of the afternoon and evening measuring, quote, all the Indians in the valley. In a letter to Marie the next day, he wrote of landing a treasure, though he didn't stay long enough to, to take his full measure. By day three, Boaz was back on the train bound for his next destination. I might stop there. I could continue. But it is the beginning of an amazing relationship between Boaz and my biographical subject that really informs a lot of this book project and and a very incredible side of BC cultural history. Yeah, I mean, Boaz was he's such a fascinating character because I both loved and hated him throughout the whole book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. I tried to tread easily on the Boaz front, believe it or not, because, you know, he's he's got a, an incredible task ahead of him. Yeah. Um, he's He's frustrated all the time. He's just so ambitious. I found a little... Um, one of my chapters opens with Boaz talking about um, how if he, you know, he he's a, t- a late teenager in Germany and he said, writes to his sister that, you know, if he doesn't become famous one day, he, he won't know what to do with himself. And he's a late teenager. So you can see he just totally wants to to become someone and to, to make something um, special of his life, which couldn't be further from my biographical subject, who's really sort of the most humble, most on the ground, quiet, unassuming person. Yeah, yeah. I know you you write about this in, in the first chapter, as you alluded to, but could you uh, talk a little bit about how you got to know your biographical subject, James Tate? Well, that's... Um, uh, that's chapter. I, for anybody who's interested, I, I decided to sort of launch my book project with that. Like, how, where, where did I find this guy? How did I find him? Why did he hang on to me? Why, why, and why has it taken so long for me to, to, uh, to complete? And I wouldn't even say it's completed project. It was as a graduate student. You know, um, I had my main interest was music, believe it or not. Uh, but I had, and Nova Scotia, we just touched on that. I, where I grew up, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of music growing up. I mean, it was, it became one of my big things, but as I wrapped up a music degree, I got sort of caught up in this, this feeling of, 
uh, okay, this Western Europe things had consumed me, but so had traditional music. And I played the piano accordion, you know, and, and I grew up around really a lot of singing guitars, fiddles, you name it. And somehow I ended up out here in British Columbia. There's a long story that it has to do with my uh, partner who dragged me out here too. I really felt there was something other than this that we should be focusing on, especially at the post-secondary level. So I got really caught up in just music out of, out of Canada. So indigenous music, folk music, non-Western music, something that was local, growing here, important here. So it led me to a project transcribing before computers songs for a ling- couple of linguists, and they were from around the Okanagan. They were amazing, but I was sitting in, you know, Vancouver and Victoria kind of transcribing before computers these songs. And, you know, I just had this burning desire to meet the singers who were singing on these tapes. And so I I was taken to meet a couple of them and it just opened up a huge door. There was a wonderful woman. They're, They're in my chapter one because they are just so important to who I became and who I am and why I landed on this guy. Some, you know, wonderful singer, Mary Abel from Vernon, and then two... Uh, wonderful sisters, Amy August and Adeline Willard, who were from Chushwap um, Lake uh, in the Sconleth area. And they were wonderful singers. And I got caught up in their beautiful uh, songs. And then you started looking around at, you know, had anybody else? Where, what, where could I find others? And I found this guy, Jimmy Tate, <laughs> had recorded over 200 songs on wax cylinder recording you know the big horns you know wind it up crank it up songs from the same area in 19 between 1912 and 1920 and that with Boaz who I just mentioned Boaz turned up I mentioned he was there in 1894 he turned up again in 1897 with a little portable recording machine and with Tate recorded like over 40 songs right there at Spence's Bridge. So starting in 1897 and from 1912 to 1920, I had this, and they were all beautifully preserved and, and copied. Uh, they had been sent to Ottawa, the museum in Ottawa. So, I, so for me, it was like, I have this amazing backdrop. And not just that, beautiful legal size pages of handwritten, beautiful handwriting notes. The singer's name, the singer's Indian name, white name, her relationship to her community, all of these incredible notes about where she got her, where her song came from and and uh, what it meant to her. And, and if there were words in it, they were all beautifully translated at the end. These were like gold mine. So then I had this backdrop and then I was continuing to go back and visit these other women. And then I had like old and new and then I was going back to the communities with these old songs that they didn't really know much about and they knew the old singers and they were related to them and then the whole community sort of erupted with excitement about these old recordings photographs too so uh that sort of got me going on who is this guy who kept all these notes and did these recordings that was just songs then it got me going on oh my gosh you know like there are these huge monographs that he did there are these all hundreds of stories that he recorded um he did a huge pile on on basketry with these women in basket and it was was it wasn't male so many of the early turn of the century ethnographers to work went and worked with one guy who could usually speak english and that was it these were like the songs were 30 singers from one little community half of which were women you know for me that was just 
great. The basketry was huge work with women. This, so much work with women at a time when women weren't really interested in any outsiders, but especially not talking about who they were. To us. But he was married to this, you know, I find out that he's married to this woman called Antko and uh, he was in the Catholic and, and uh, that's a big part of his life. Uh, you know, just the hunting, the fishing, the so much of their lives that he was involved with was, and not as an outside academic, which also interested me. He was just there. He just loved, um, loved. I, I wonder if in a way, when he, if you ask me where he was from, that's another big story. If, you know, as he arrived and he was 19, from a really closely knit community, you wonder if he was homesick and that he found some sort of refuge and some sort of solace in this, these, these closely knit, um, you know, we forget that these little communities were filled with mostly young men from everywhere, no many women, and they were strange collections of people. And in the indigenous community, you found much more, you know, integrated families and women and men and children. And I wonder if that, anyway, that led to, uh, another side, which is like, which really opened me up and really got me running with him. Uh, and that's that he jumped into their political problems from 1908 until he died in 1922. And so for me, that was a real education in, in Canadian Indigenous politics, British Columbia politics over land and so many issues that they faced. He just tackled that head on and helped these people articulate in English, which they didn't speak or read. Uh, so for us, it becomes this treasure trove of documents. So I had all of this stuff. And um, to try to make sense of it took me a very long time. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, often when when I talk to nonfiction writers who do historical writing, one of those things that always, it's the research thing, like, how do you know when to stop? And with you, you had, you had such an abundance of research, but it also seemed like there was these spots where you didn't, you maybe were missing pieces because while he um, kept amazing records of the work he was doing, his side of the story, him as a man, wasn't there at the same time. So I was curious about those challenges you faced with the research. Yeah, biographies are are interesting. And I ended up with a guy who didn't, you know, I couldn't find, as you were sort of pointing out, I couldn't find a lot where you got him reflecting and philosophizing himself, you know, so that is sometimes in some of the, you know, letters to an uncle where he's sort of talking about a little bit about who he is and what he's all about is is a bit of an eye-opener to family members or his father we've got some of his father's letters writing about him you can get insights into him but so much the the correspondence which is huge is professional it's almost like twice a week to boaz in new york city and twice a week to another guy in ottawa so i've got piles of professional but you're constantly as you say you want to see the persona the man behind this so i've got some people telling us you know the most you know, the moving ones are, say, Peter Kelly, who I loved, and, you know, a, a Haida indigenous political activist, you know, who he says he was one of us, he was a brother, he was, people, lo- you know, the, the indigenous leaders loved him. You know, I loved getting those kinds of insights, because I didn't have, you know, a lot of people who write biographies to have huge memoirs and diaries to deal with. I didn't have that. So you're right, uh, you know, you spin the story together in in a way that 
maybe in my first chapter, I do sort of say, I don't, I don't have all that stuff, but I sure have a lot. What do I do with it? Well, and I thought the the stuff about um, you mentioned where he came from, but you, this, I found the stuff in Shetland so fascinating too, because it was, it was like you were kind of weaving this backstory in a sense out of nothing, because you were you had you know his contemporaries, his peers, but it wasn't him exactly. So you're kind of alluding to what he might have been, and I would love to hear more about that trip and and what it was like for you to share that also with Patrick, because your your family also comes into the story so much as well. You mentioned in the the uh, acknowledgments that James Tate was the other man, and I found that so funny because I think we hear about that so much when the books almost become this like family member that lives in the closet sort of thing <laughs> definitely yeah he's he's lived with our within our family and that's why it was a really neat thing to have our kids read the whole thing from beginning to end and see what i was sort of on about for so long and fragments and and yeah the shetland side again you know you don't have you have his father through letters to some of his siblings and others talking about his sons and his you know so there'd be occasional things that would come up but, you know, you don't have, if you don't have a lot, if nobody's there really um, giving you, you know, with a magnifying glass on the guy, if there's not a lot of paper trail left, you know, what do you do? Uh, so you do draw a lot on what his contemporaries are doing and, uh, and what's going on in this little island archipelago, Shetland in the North Sea in the 1870s, you know, what sort of stuff is, would somebody wandering around this tiny little community, the only community on the island, aside from these outer islands, you know, what, what was going on? What did it look like? How did it feel? And it was nice to go there and, and get a sense of how small and tight it is. And even during my first visit to wander up and down the streets and ask someone about, about something and have somebody say to me, oh, you know, I saw you on the, this other street, you know, two days ago at about two o'clock and you realize like you, it is so small. Everybody knows everybody, but it gave me a sense of the smallness, the intimacy that he was raised in there and, and never lost a, an incredible love of this Island uh, family, you know, this, this life that nurtured him as a young person um, the only other place where I ended up with a good lens on him, which I made use of in chapter nine, which was just so powerful, was when I had him in Ottawa with chiefs, you know, on the land issue. And I had Marius Barbeau, who's another character, doesn't, in anthropology, doesn't come out very well in my my book. I don't have much respect for him after what I see, what he did with the work that he gathered with Tate. So Tate's there translating for a wonderful man from Spence's Bridge, who he really admired, who died in 1918, Chief John Tetlanitsa. I kind of try to make a big deal of him in the book because he's so important. And they're having this great exchange. And there's a, at the museum in Ottawa, Edward Sapir is an interesting anthropologist we in Canada should know more about, is a young hire in Ottawa, they decide the government creates this sort of anthropological department is part of this new museum. And they, through Boas, they hire this pretty interesting guy um, who's, who's, who's just, he's sort of an intellect in a, in, in a really incredible way. He's a deep linguist. He writes poetry. He's, he's quite something around the same age as Tate. And he gets the job. He has great respect for Tate. So when Tate's coming to, to Ottawa 
uh, Sapir is really interested in hiring and is putting team together. Tate says, okay, well, you know, I'll work for you, but there's no way I'm coming to Ottawa. So they work out a deal where he can kind of work from Spence's Bridge. So the, the first trip he comes with these chiefs to talk, to meet with prime ministers and DIA. Um, Sapir says, look, when you're not busy in parliament, just come next door to where we are and you can hang out. And I think I say in chapter nine, I think it was a Sapir's way of saying, you know, like it's going to be tense for them. And there's racism and Tate had a hard time even getting it, had to negotiate a hotel through Sapir because he knew that the hotels wouldn't take these chiefs. And uh, so Sapir says, come on over to our place. And and they went on their off hours and off days. And it sounds like they were really warmly greeted and accepted. And they did feel like it was a haven compared to what they were encountering in the other parts. So, so there's this new guy who's just, you know, got a PhD in anthropology at Oxford. He's from Quebec. Maris Barbeau is quite a famous Canadian. He ends up with a job there. So he's sort of I, I can do some work with these guys. So he thinks he's going to sort of record some songs and stories while they're there. So he does. The great thing is that, that the chief, several of them, but mostly Tetlanitsa doesn't speak any English. Tate's fluent in, in, in Tetlanitsa's language. So the two of them go back and forth. And it's the only time I have, you know, Barbeau looking at this exchange and writing about it. And, you know, Tate is obviously saying, okay, this is what we're, so he's dictating his translations and he has all sorts of asides as Tetlanese is telling his wonderful stories. And then the most wonderful thing happens. Tate tells a couple of the wonderful stories himself and, and Barbeau then records them. And it's just so powerful because in all of this documentation that Tate ends up doing over the years, Barbeau has him. He's he's documenting, you know, some of his own perspectives on stuff, but mostly what other people are telling him. And so here we have a guy recording the two of Tate in, in conversation with Tetlanitsa. And the fact that he's t- Tate's telling his own stories, which are like really trippy stories, is just an indication of how he works and his relationships with these people. Like if Tetlanitsa is telling stories, he's not just objectifying him and telling and making him the storyteller. He's joining in. Yeah, I I loved too that part where um his son gives you the collection of books that he had on the shelf and just and I was curious about all these because the book is so full of these rich characters, both historical characters like some of those you've mentioned, like Boaz and the various chiefs, but also these like current characters come into the story as well. Your family and the archivists in Shetland and and Tate's um, family, and I I'm just I I. If you want to share even just some some anecdotes or tidbits or, you know, what those moments were like for you just with those people, because it's well, it's about Tate. It's about all these this host of people that he surrounded himself and that still kind of can't help but be drawn to him. Oh, Megan, I'm so glad you picked off those things because I agonized over how to, you know, I don't know. You're a creative writer. I so admire, as I say, I've, as I've told you, I think that if I was starting a game, that's right where I would go right away, first, right away. But what you do, I think, when you're trying to launch a chapter, and you know, you want to get your reader to chapter two, in that case, in my Shetland chapter, I want to get them to chapter three. I don't want them to give up before they get to chapter three. Then when I get them to chapter three, I don't want them to, I don't want to lose them. So you have to sort of dream up ways, in a way, strategies, which is probably what you do in creative writing, but which we don't do in academia much. We just dump it on, right? And like an encyclopedic form. And and so I was thinking, how can I launch that chapter? 
And so you lie in bed awake at night and you sort of think, yeah, you know, these books, you know, I mean, I think of numerous things and mostly I try to think of the, the really powerful moments. And for me, Seeger Tate, who I dedicate the book to was really important. He was Tate's son. And he was so much a part of the project, as I explain, it's too much to go in here. So it was so lovely for me to think of like, well, he brought me all those books. He brought me so much stuff. And I was at a stage of my life where I was busy with kids and jobs and everything. And I just sort of take it all in and then say, oh, Sigurd, yes, I'm making good headway. But in my head, I was knowing that I wasn't. And, you know, so I took the books and I put them on my shelf and I looked at them for the longest time. You know, the spines of the book, you know, it's so nice to have Tate's books here. And then I suddenly a light went on. I thought I can I can make use of those books because when I started flipping through them, I realized I was doing the Shetland history and realized, wow, in the 1870s, there was this little collection of really nationalistic Shetlanders. Many of them were from the diaspora. You know, they were outward, like Tate in a way, who were sort of trying to sort of, they were missing home. They were valorizing and, and just loved their, there had been such a mass exodus, they loved their island. And so these books, it turned out, were all about that in a way. And, and they were, you know, I found a little notation in a Chicago newspaper written by an expat Shetlander who was about Tate's age. And he was saying, you know, these books, Tate's sustained in, in northern British Columbia, he was trapping out by himself. He says he's sustained by his Shetland book authors. And they were these authors of these books. So I suddenly started, you know, finding out more about them, looking at the more and the books, then looking at the books. And they had little notations. And the dialect in Shetland is part Norse. They a lot of I mean, it was originally a Norse dialect that after Shetland gets hived off to shot to uh, Scotland from from Scandinavia, from Denmark, um, gets mixed with English. But even now it's really Tate loved his dialect. Even now it's still got something that that the rest Orkney has, but the rest of so Tate revered his his dialect. So here were Tate's contemporaries, some of them, you appreciate this, because you know, his cohorts had a some of them wrote, you know, poetry and novels about their, you know, I got into the novelists, the writers, they were writers and they were writing historians and botanists, they were just getting into Shetland. And they were also getting into their dialects. They write, you know, novelist, Haldane Burgess, you would love, I mean, you would love him. He's cut out of your cloth. He he was, a, you know, a creative writer, um, poet, novelist in Shetland, as, who went blind, went, did a, did a, a master's at Glasgow, went back, became blind, but still sort of wrote. And here I have one of his books, you know, that he signed over to Tate, one of his good buddies in some correspondence. Just those books to me started to take on a life. And then I sort of thought, well, I'm going to use that life that I feel to launch that chapter. It's all to me. I don't know, as I say, I'd love to be in creative writing classes or writing workshops because it's finding strategies that that kind of work. You might wake up the next day or two days later and think this really doesn't work and put it in the trash can. But when it sort of does, it it has um it has uh it takes on meaning. And the, you mentioned the you mentioned the archivist because and I I'm glad that you did because so often it also seemed to me, I don't know about you, but with academic books, I go first to the acknowledgments because it's often the only place where I can find out who, who are they? Where they come from? Who have they interacted with? Like, how long have they been working on this? Where is their inspiration? Like, you know, so all those little things. 
and they're usually a page or two long. And that gives me sometimes I'll get the book or read the book just because of what I found there. I decided to do this more in my first chapter. And it occurred to me there that these archivists who are characters in your projects, certainly the, you know, when I, you're, you're interacting with them, they're, they're providing you with stuff, you're having fun with them, they're, you know, you're, you're, they're your barometers sometimes on how you're doing. You know, I knew nothing about Shetland. I was really worried about writing anything about British history, Shetland history. My base is here in BC. It was just a hard thing. So when you're sending something there that you're a novice in and you're sending it to something, you think, oh my gosh, who am I? So when you get help and when you figure out what they've written, the archivists, and how much they know, it doesn't seem fair to just say thank you to so-and-so for their archival help. So I really enjoyed writing somebody like Brian Smith, who's the, you know, a, a leading archivist at the, at the Shetland Archives. I enjoyed writing them in, into the book, into the story, instead of hiving them off. And it's rarely done. And I know that in, in academia, I've broken rules. They do not, you know, like for older traditional historians, what I've done in my first chapter is what you're not supposed to do. So, you know, it's, I find, I found that really interesting too. You're not supposed to bury yourself too much, but I don't know about you. I just absolutely cling on to the personal in the story. And so that's probably why, you know, Patrick was there with me, Patrick, who was your schoolmate at Stelly's, um, you know, he was there with his fiddle and uh, so, and we went together and that moment of going to where Tate's family roots were formed, uh, Patrick was there with me. It just seemed, you know, why leave him out? And, you know, when I put that in, I thought, am I going to leave this year? I end the chapter with there, you know, it's, it's hard to know how much and how little, but more and more I'm coming to your conclusion, which is, it's all about stories. And unless the story is moving through your narrative, unless you've got the story going, if you lose it, if you start to veer off, you know, I was thinking I veered off lots of times, you know, with women in Shetland and knitting and craft. And, you know, I had tons on knitting is so important in Shetland. And an upheli, a wonderful winter ceremony. I had about 10 pages on that, you know, and it was my neighbor who read it. said, uh, uh, Wendy, you got to, you know, I was taking I was carried away by it. It was so amazing. But then, you know, it's sad when you have to sort of cut it down to a page and a half, but, you know, you're busy trying to keep that page and a half to the golden nugget. Yeah. And I, I wanted to kind of loop back to something we were talking about at uh, before we officially started recording, but you were touching on how important it was to write this book for an Indigenous audience. And I wondered if you could elaborate a little bit about that, but also... Um, I mean, that part for me was so interesting as someone who was born and raised in British Columbia and educated in the public uh, education system. Uh, so much of what you included in there was like brand new for me. And I just thought, why? I thought, why is this brand new for me? Like, I feel like we um, we've learned we've learned like a particular kind of version of I, I think a lot of people think this of our history and it's like we know the gold rush we know when people showed up we know Fort Victoria but all the stuff about the reserve system and how that happened in BC in particular was fascinating for me and I think 
it's we've largely kind of glossed over the that part of our history yeah and i i'm really happy to hear you mention that because um you know i think my effort maybe all these years of of working on this working with so many uh and uh, becoming friends with so many in the indigenous communities and um getting so immersed in their lives they when i was grinding up this project for so many they were always in view like i kept them always in view and one person in particular i always mention is john hogan from lytton lytton uh first nation who was in my kitchen one day as i was plodding along and said please Wendy, make it readable you know, he, he said there's so many good, and he's really passionate about BC history and Indigenous history, but he, he was the one who said, you know, I often can't get past page 10, even if it's a good, looks like a good piece of work. So I, I was worried the whole time. You know, it was good that he said that to me because his name is, his, I'd almost see him as I was grinding out bits and pieces and think, I wonder what John would think of this. That was very good for me. But overall, it also requires, because I am a Shama, I'm, I'm an outsider. And so uh, in all my teaching and all my work, you know, you're always aware that there's a certain um, there's a certain layer of respect you always want to maintain. And that's hard in my sort of narrative voice and for what I'm doing throughout, always aware of it. You do not want to be seen speaking for other people. You and it was really good that I had Tate in a way because I was he's he's he was a humble good person. I could never spend all those years working on someone who I just you know didn't feel an affinity toward. I just always felt an affinity, and the indigenous people throughout the interior who know about him feel an affinity too, which is which was also a a good thing for me. So, um, so always wanting to write it in a respectful way, not to hold forth, not to, this is the way it's a style. You can't even put your hands on it, but trying always and still always feeling, feeling fearful that I put it out there that I do not want to be speaking for, I want to be speaking through him. I want people to see, you know, how he saw the world in the 1880s, how 90 year olds in the 1880s opened up to him. We don't realize that they didn't open up to outsiders and they couldn't really, they, they were multilingual in their own languages and adjacent languages, but they didn't speak English. And so he was dealing with a whole pile of people who had to be able to fight back in a way in English and had, didn't have the tools at the time to do it. So that was really good. So for me, the most important thing after publishing the book was taking it back to the communities and so, you know, host, Indigenous communities and my old friends hosted events for the book. And those were like the most meaningful events of my life because, you know, to have people there who knew me for such a long time and knew about Tate and who were, you know, taking my book and, um, you know, feeling like, you know, it was an offering of sorts. And I think of... Um, I think of Karen Dunstan, who who is lives in Lytton, and she was at the Lytton gathering, and she got up at the end and she said, "I want to know what white people think of this, you know." And you suddenly realize that, you know, they're so used to everybody resisting anything they write, and they want to put forward a message of who they are in their own terms and everything, and and that it, it's been so presented in ways that they don't agree with or they don't like or it's distasteful. 
it was really like such a nice thing for Karen to feel like she wanted white people to read this and know how they, how do they respond to it? Because my, my, my story is such a, I like to think it's such a positive one. If there's any negativity, it's, it's because of the settler colonial assault, you know, um, and so for Karen, it, you know, I try to send her the feedback because she's like, I really want to know. She couldn't believe that people would actually like my account <laughs> on the outside world. Um, because, you know, it, it's it's really, I, I'd like to think of it as, as a tribute to them. I mean, I don't like think I'm, you know, candy coating anything, but, you know, it really is to, for Tate, it was a tribute. And I like to think that I'm presenting his tribute, but, you, you know, with my own gloss too. The indigenous feedback that I get is means so much to me. You know, when I get uh, someone writing to me from the indigenous community saying, you know, this this story has I, meaning to me that that is the most important thing I can take from the whole project. But I also like the fact that I do want my Shama colleagues, white colleagues also to read it. And so I'm so happy to to hear from you that you know, you're talking about chapter two and you're talking about, like, those are hard chapters. And I want, I too felt people don't know these stories. They sort of, or they do, but it's been in such sort of academic niches that you're not feeling like reading a lot of stuff that, you know, was on my shelves. And so I didn't want to become that. So for, I, but I've got you in view. Like, I want you to read chapter two and I want you to feel the agony that I felt trying to distill a huge pile of history to you in a way that you can kind of remember when you're finished and kind of feel bad about it. You know, I mean, this is, but not in a stock formulaic way. That's really hard. And that's why I love speaking to you, Megan, because I think you as a writer, writers understand how hard it is. And, uh, I don't think that academics are appreciating enough that they do the research. They get the mind, you know, the mind, they get the piles of data and then they dump it in. And I think that they're dumping it in a way that's not doing, you know, they need to figure out how to tell us, take that informed stories, which is how you're being, you know, you've been trained and probably what you value and you're being taught to value and what you, you value when you read. So I'm valuing that way more as I read uh, because of what I've struggled with. Thanks so much to Wendy for being on the podcast. And thanks as always to you, our lovely listeners, for subscribing and listening to Writing the Coast. If you want to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, and we're going to have some exciting events and other information coming your way, you will want to visit our website bcyukonbookprizes.com. And of course, all that information will also be shared on our social media accounts. So if you're not following us already, be sure to find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Jen Crawl, author of Bad Boys of Fashion, Style Rebels and Renegades Through the Ages. And Bad Boys of Fashion was a finalist for the 2020 Christy Harris Illustrated Children's Literature Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.